keep uh, that part of the Bible open, please. You're going to need to um, refer to it this morning. And uh, I'm just going to take a second to get set up here. You might remember last week, I don't know if you do, Steve um, started the service by asking whether your cup was empty or half full or full. Um, he asked whether your week had left you in one of these states. And his point was that um, as we come to church, we come to sit under the word of God, to hear of his goodness and his kindness to us. Um, and as we do, we are refilled and we can leave with our cup overflowing. I thought that was a very helpful illustration in general, but a particularly good illustration for this sermon, so I stole it. And um, I've made it a little bit better, hopefully. So <laughs> this is... Uh, like only an engineer can. Well, it did involve a drill. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so this is cup illustration 2.0, if you will. Revision 1. <laughs> uh, often I feel a little bit more like this cup. This cup here. Um, from the outside, it looks perfectly fine. Right? But if you have a look a bit closer, and this is where the drill comes in, it's got some problems. <laughs> this cup was designed to hold water. That's its purpose. That's what makes it feel fulfilled. But it's been broken. But look what happens when we immerse ourselves in, uh, let's call this the source of living water. If we immerse ourselves in the source, not only is our cup full, but despite our sin and despite our brokenness, it's overflowing. You can't separate the water from inside the cup to the living water outside the cup. And you'd have no reason to think that this cup was broken at all. But, as we go through our week, and we tend to remove ourselves from the source, our brokenness drains us. We are emptied. And no matter what we do, we just simply can't hold water. If we want to feel full again, we have no choice but to return to the source. To return to the living water. And this cycle of emptying and filling is something that we actually saw last year when we looked at the book of Judges. This is going back a bit. I want you to see if you can stretch your memory a little bit. Do you remember this cycle that we looked at from the book of Judges? Over and over again we saw this cycle play out. Israel sins. They reject God's rule over their lives. Uh, and so they're emptied. God removes the blessings from them and they fall prey to their enemies. God's people suffer for a while, and when they've had enough, they cry out to God. God takes pity on them, and he sends a judge to restore God's rule. And for a while, a time of peace ensues, and they're filled with blessings again. But before long, as we learned, this cycle just repeats itself. Because in those days, there was no king in Israel. Though God was supposed to be their king, they rejected God's rule, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. I bring this up because this is our context for the book of Ruth. This is where we find ourselves today. Uh, if you have a look in your Bibles, you'll see that the book of Ruth comes right after the book of Judges. And verse 1 in Ruth says, in the days when the judges ruled. So this is where we are. This is our setting today. But Ruth is a wonderful book that even in this time, and despite the persistent sinfulness of his people, 
God's plans to fill this world with blessings unfold through, very un, through one very unlikely woman called Ruth. So uh, I'm just going to pray as we, start, as we start looking into this book of Ruth. Loving Father, we come today to sit under your word, to be filled. Uh, we come emptied by our sin and our uh, rebellion and our brokenness, and Lord, we know that, but we come to be filled by your word, uh, filled by your grace. We pray that your Holy Spirit would fill us as we uh, hear from the book of Ruth, and uh, I pray that you give me the words to say to uh, better express these wonderful truths that we can find within. Amen. So the story of Ruth uh, can't really be separated from the story of Naomi. And Naomi's story unfolds much in the same way as the story of our cup. First she's emptied, then she returns, and then she's filled again. The emptying and the returning, they occur in chapter 1, and the filling uh, occurs in stages throughout the rest of the book. Uh, We're only looking at chapter 1 today, and we begin at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So we learn there's a famine in the land. Now, whether that famine is caused by drought or caused by Israel's enemies, we don't know. But we do know where in the cycle of Judges we are. If we can put the cycle back up, we can see that we are here. Now, we're not told what Israel has done to anger God, to bring down his covenant curses. Knowing the book of Judges, though, we probably don't want to know. Instead, the story zooms in on one particular family, the family of Elimelech which ironically means, my God is king. And they lived in Bethlehem, which literally means the breadbasket. So our story starts in the breadbasket, but the breadbasket has been emptied. And a family whose name literally means, we submit to God's rule, avoid this hardship by leaving God's land. Now it's just temporary to start with. In verse 1 it says they sojourned to Moab. But by the end of verse 2, They've decided to remain there. Now, it's hard, to us, hard for us to appreciate the full stupidity of this move. After all, there's a famine. Who wouldn't go journeying to try and find food? But for Israel, their connection to the fullness of God was through their covenant with him. And his blessings were conveyed through the land and through their national identity as God's people. Their covenant or the agreement the Israelites had made with God explicitly laid out blessings and curses tied to obedience and disobedience. If they obeyed him, they would be filled with blessings, food, family, security, so on. But if they disobeyed, if they separated themselves from the source of blessings, then they would be emptied. To enjoy God's blessings, Elimelech and his family had to remain part of God's people in God's land, under God's rule. But for the sake of their comfort, they've left God's land and have gone willingly into the hand of God's sworn enemy, Moab. Moab, like the other nations around Israel, were outside God's favour. They were under God's wrath. 
But that's where Elimelech and Naomi and their sons decide to set up home. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. And so, over the course of maybe 15 years, but in just a few verses for us, Naomi's life unravels. Elimelech, her husband, dies, leaving her alone with the two boys. After some time, her sons marry Moabite women, unfortunately a, a common sin in the time of the judges. They marry Orpah and Ruth, who after ten years of marriage, remain as barren as the fields of Israel. So without any heirs to their name, the two sons also die, and Naomi is left alone. In just a few short verses, Naomi has gone from living in the breadbasket of Israel to a shattering emptiness in Moab. In this agricultural, male-dominated Moab, if you have no men, you have no food, because you have no land. Naomi is hungry, the very fate she is trying to flee. But it's more than that. We have here the destruction of the family of Elimelech. Family identity was everything in ancient Israel. It not only defined your share in the land, it also reserved your share in the kingdom of God. Now in Israel there are laws to help women in Naomi's position. There are laws to make sure that she would be fed. Laws to ensure that her family line might be preserved. But Naomi is not in Israel. She's a foreigner in an enemy land without any means to support herself or her daughters-in-law. So devastating is her situation, so totaled her loss, she's only referred to as the woman in verse 5. She's even lost her name. Now there's emptiness, but then there is emptiness. And Naomi, she's angry with God. She's angry and bitter. We don't really find that out right away, but if we scan down to verse 20, she vents her feelings to some other women. She says to them, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant or sweet. Call me Mara, which means bitter. So do not call me pleasant. Call me bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? What would you say to Naomi? I wonder if uh, she came and poured this out to you. Well, for my part, I'm a man, I can think I can speak for every man here when I can say, well, we would just calmly and sensibly <laughs> explain to Naomi what she's done wrong and how she should go about fixing it. Yep. Yeah, that would work. Yeah. But unfortunately, God brings her into the company of other women, so that doesn't happen. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Might have to edit that one. Okay. Uh, look, of course, as the reader, with our context, we do have, luckily, some insight into Naomi's suffering here. We know that in the time of Judges, the suffering of God's people was a consequence of their sin, but it always had a redemptive purpose. It was always used by God to bring his people back to him. 
And that's how we're supposed to understand Naomi's situation. We're supposed to see it as the consequence of persistent, unrepentant sin, but also as the outworking of God's redeeming love. Our God is a God of redeeming love, which means his purpose, his priority, is not necessarily to give us a good life here and now. It is to redeem us from our slavery to sin and death so that we can share in an eternal life with him. And this eternal end justifies any momentary means. If you belong to God, and maybe you should take this as a warning, if you belong to God and if you chase the empty promises of sin that lead you away from God, God will, if necessary, empty you of every blessing you took for granted and empty you of every pleasure of sin until you return to him, even if you must return angry and bitter. The book of Hebrews calls this the discipline of a loving father. It is unpleasant, it's even painful in the moment, but in the long run, it results in peaceful righteousness for those trained by it. It is an expression of God's redeeming love for his children. Naomi, of course, doesn't see her suffering this way. She doesn't see any redemptive purpose in it at all. I'm not even sure she sees it as a consequence for sin. She seems to be accusing God of being cruel and arbitrary and having afflicted her out of turn. It's helpful to note that the writer doesn't condemn Naomi for feeling the way that she does. And I think that's because he knows that's the thing about suffering, isn't it? It, it blinds us to God's purpose. It makes us doubt God's love and God's goodness. In the moment, we cannot imagine how there could possibly be a God of redeeming love actively working in our lives. But as we walk through the book of Ruth, you will see that Naomi's feelings, while natural, they don't reflect the reality of God's love for her. Now, I just want to pause at this point because I'm aware there are probably some here who are feeling a bit afflicted by God. Maybe there's someone going through severe suffering or distress or grief still raw. And if that's you, then you're going to be sitting there and you're going to be hearing me say that your suffering is punishment for your sin. And I'm afraid I can't really take the easy way out and tell you that it isn't. Sin has consequences. And so, yes, if there's persistent, unrepentant sin in your life, then absolutely the best thing you can do what you need to do is confess and repent and return to God and put your cup back in the water. But whatever you're going through, I can say it's not punishment for your sins in the sense that God is pouring out his anger upon you. We live under, under a different covenant to the people of Israel. We live under a covenant where Jesus has taken God's wrath for our sin. He's taken them all upon himself at the cross and there's none left for you to bear. So if you belong to God, you are under God's redeeming love, not his anger. And God is using even this to bring you home to him, to be filled with eternal life. Which is why Romans 8 can say things like, uh, all things are used for the good of those called according to his purpose. My point is that if you're feeling emptied today, your feelings don't reflect the reality 
of God's love for you. Let's turn now to verse 6. We're going to see how God brings Naomi and Ruth home. Verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So we've moved on in the cycle of Judges. Uh, If we put up our map again, uh, we're now here in a time of peace. God's blessings have returned. Food is back in Israel. And presumably, it's because Israel have repented and returned to God. Naomi, too, is returning to the land of Israel. And while it would be nice that we could say, uh, if we could say that she was repentant, it seems that she's just following the food. But on the way back, in three separate dialogues, we see Naomi try to convince her daughters not to follow her. In verse 8, she says uh, to her daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. Uh, In verse 10, we see their reply, No, we will return with you to your people. Naomi is insistent, though, and she tries to convince her daughters that they're walking into a disaster. In fact, if Orpah and Ruth follow Naomi, they'll be in exactly the same situation that Naomi is trying to flee. She lays it all out logically. There's no way I can support you in Israel. I can't offer you any hope of remarriage. But if you return to Moab, you might be able to start again. You might be able to remarry. At least you'll be with your family who might take pity on you. Naomi knows just how bitter it is to be a begging widow in the land of your enemies. And fair enough, she doesn't want that fate for her daughters. Orpah, distressed and with many tears because she truly loves Naomi makes the sensible decision and returns to her family. Ruth, however, chooses Naomi's fate. From verse 15, uh, Naomi says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge... I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Now this seems to defy all logic. Naomi has made it clear there's no future for Ruth in Israel. So why would Ruth choose this fate? The simple answer is we don't really know for sure and there's probably all sorts of mixed motives but there's a very strong refrain at the centre of Ruth's argument, right in the middle of her argument, there in verse 16 she says your people shall be my people and your God my God. And this is really similar to God's covenantal promise, a refrain that uh, God says again and again when he's renewing his covenant with his people, he says, I will be your God and you shall be my people. So it does appear that Ruth here is responding to God's covenantal promise. She seems to be accepting the terms and conditions of being part of the people of Israel. Uh, And this also plays out. We'll see this develop 
and, and to be the truth as we go through the rest of the book and we see Ruth accepted and integrated into Israel. Now, we don't know how much Ruth really knew about Yahweh at this point. She was married to an Israelite family for 10 years. A bit of a rubbish Israelite family, to be sure. But we can assume they would have celebrated the holidays. They would have enjoyed their feasts. And at those feasts, they would have told their traditional stories. So in some sense, she would have learned the promises of God. She would have learned of his promises to give them a land, to make them a great nation, to be a blessing to the world. She would have heard of his character, his might and his holiness, his mercy, and of course his redeeming love. Whatever she had heard, it's obviously taken uh, taken root in Ruth's heart. And it's grown to a point where she's willing to forsake her family, her nation, and to submit herself to God as the lowliest and most despised of his people. And so here we are. We have two women returning to God's land with very different reasons and outlooks. Naomi is fleeing her fate. Ruth counts the cost and chooses the same fate. Naomi is returning because God has left her no choice. Ruth has chosen to submit to God in faith. What a great picture of just perfect, pure, simple faith. The Bible does not say that the righteous will live by knowing all of God's plans for them. It doesn't say that the righteous will live as long as God gives them an easy life. It says the righteous will live by faith by trusting in the character of God despite your feelings and despite your circumstances. I actually know a woman who made a a similar journey once. Um, It didn't involve such tragic circumstances, thank goodness. But this woman did leave her family. She left her own country. She travelled to the other side of the world simply because she felt called by God to make the move. She had no friends and no family waiting in the country she was travelling to, and she said to me that before she left, she avoided telling her plans to other people because she didn't want to be swayed by anyone but God. But every sermon and every prayer and every opportunity seemed to tell her to make the move, to go into this unknown situation. But this wasn't blind faith. She knew and absolutely trusted that God is good. God wasn't just having a laugh. God wasn't setting them up for a fall. He's not capricious or mean. God is good. And so she trusted him and got on a plane to Australia. And as it happens, her name is also Ruth. Our beloved Ruth Morgan, sitting in the front row, front and centre, being filled by God's word. And of course, we saw another example just earlier when Pete said, there's a bit of an unknown in this situation and you've got to make the move because God is calling. And if you can trust that God is good, well, then you can walk into the unknown because you know he's always always got your back. He's always got your best interests at heart. God could tell us all of his plans, but he doesn't. Instead, he tells us about himself. The whole Bible that we have here is a testament to his goodness, his patience, his mercy, his redeeming love. It also shows us that he is powerful to save, that he is sovereign Over all things, there is nothing that will thwart his purposes. In short, it tells us that God is trustworthy. So if we study 
and reflect on God's character when times are good, we'll be all the more prepared to return to him when sin leads us away from him. Right, return with me now to verse 19, because Ruth and Naomi have returned home. So the two of them went on until they came to the breadbasket, Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, still angry, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And so Naomi returned. And Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This seems like a bit of an empty end to the chapter, but verse 22 gives us two hints of blessings to come, two fillings that God will work out over the next three chapters. First of all, Naomi has returned. And despite her bitter cry to the women that she has returned empty, Verse 22 makes it clear she is not empty. By God's grace and his purpose, he has brought back with her this amazing, loving, incredibly supportive daughter-in-law, Ruth. And Ruth will be a major source of blessing, not only to Naomi, but to all of God's people. Second, right at the end there, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. The chapter started with the bread basket being emptied. Well, now it seems the breadbasket is ready to be filled again. And over the next few chapters, Naomi will be filled. She'll be filled with food. She'll be filled with identity and filled with family as Ruth is enabled to conceive and bear a son. In the final chapter, the very women she complains to here will sing for her, Praise the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer. But God's plans are bigger than Ruth and Naomi. Through Ruth, God will bless Israel with a king, King David, who breaks the cycle of judges. And we'll see God's plans unfold even further as God blesses the world with his redeeming king, Jesus Christ, who fills the entire world with hope. And as good as all of that is, it's still just a shadow of the ultimate filling that God has planned for his people. Friends, we dwell now in an enemy land. Our sin would lead us away from God and empty us. But for those who trust in God's redeeming love, revealed in our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, God will bring us home to fullness. We have a deposit of this now, as he fills us by his Holy Spirit. But when we return home and we're raised with Jesus, we will know what it means to be filled in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I'm just going to finish with two passages today, two passages from the New Testament that will help us close this out. The first is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want you to see how Paul compares the emptiness that he endured in life with the fullness God has promised his children. So we do not lose heart, he says. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weightiness 
of glory beyond all comparison. As we walk by faith, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And the second passage is from Ephesians 3, and we're going to finish with this prayer. A prayer that Paul prays for all the people of God, that they may know the fullness of God that awaits them in Jesus. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's the taste of the fullness we enjoy now. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints here this morning what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the redeeming love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. And all people's, <laughs> all God's people say, Amen. Thank you. Friends, we're not having any question time today. Um, that doesn't mean you can't ask questions. Come and grab me after the service. I'm more than happy to talk about this fantastic chapter of Ruth or anything that we've talked about today. Uh, as the band comes up, please just take a moment of reflection to think about what we've heard.